According to the United Nations World Cities Report, globally by 2030 it is projected that there will be 706 cities with at least 1 million residents, and there will be 43 megacities, which are cities with over 10 million people. As life in urban environments continues to grow, what can be done so they are well positioned to allow people to thrive while also ensuring maximum care for environmental concerns? Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode of If When, I'm joined by Carrie Ike, Secretary General for the Organization for International Economic Relations and leader, United for Smart Sustainable Cities Implementation Program, and Kate Kenny, Jacob's Head of Sector, Cities and Places Europe. In the discussion that follows, we explored the key attributes of an ideally sustainable urban environment, the benefits of a city that is inclusive and resilient, and the top challenges that cities need to overcome to position themselves for success as smart, sustainable places to live. Carrie and Kate, thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about sustainable urban development. It's a very interesting world we live in, and it seems like uh, the timing for this uh, with everything going on with the pandemic and how we're kind of reevaluating how we interact with each other in society kind of makes this a timely discussion. So to start us off, Carrie, I'd like to turn to you first. Can you describe for our listeners some of the work that you do as part of the Organization for International Economic Relations and also for the United for Smart Sustainable Cities program? Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. I'm working and we are working mainly because it's really overtaking the organization, but also through the program, we are working on developing and supporting smart, sustainable cities. And with that, we mean, of course, you know, smart city has been a concept for the last 20 years, I think. Uh, I think it's been very diffuse what we mean about smart cities. Mm-hmm. But I think when we linked it to sustainability and when we got the sustainable development goals in 2015, it starts to make sense. So the main thing that we do is that through the United for Smart Sustainable Cities, in cooperation with ITU, the International Telecommunication Union and other UN agencies, we've been developing a standard or KPIs for smart sustainable cities. And we are now evaluating cities based on those KPIs and standards to see how smart and sustainable are they really and what do we need to do when we have this result. So that's really in a nutshell what we're working on. Hmm, excellent, excellent. And I and we'll dive into that a little bit and uh, you know, these rankings in the cities and there's a lot of great information out there about uh, what some of the communities are doing and I'm going to of course be asking both of you all for your insight on those communities. Kate, just to also kind of help complete the table here, can you share a little bit about what your role at Jacobs entails? You know, what type of clients you work with and what kinds of solutions you and your team provide to those clients? I would be delighted to. So I'm head of sector for cities and places in Europe at Jacobs. As a team, we take an integrated approach to envisioning, planning, designing and delivering places across scales. So that's everything from a region, a city, through to a neighbourhood, a campus or an individual building and its interiors. So this is part of our global built environment capability at Jacobs which provides sustainable solutions and results that transform lives for our clients and for our communities as well. So in that space, our expertise spans urban development, master planning, smart places, as Carrie alluded to, 
transport planning architecture, structures, civils, building services, surveying and interior design. So really the complete package in an urban environment. We really look to create solutions to the toughest challenges in many different markets. So our client base is really eclectic. So absolutely, we're working with city authorities, central and local government, but also transportation clients, clients in the defence, justice, education, life sciences, spaces, commercial developers. So at any one time, we've got teams redesigning city centres, delivering stations, masterminding high-tech science facilities as just a few examples. But we're really passionate about putting people at the heart of all of our solutions, thinking about how we connect communities in a really sustainable and inclusive way. Hmm. Excellent. And, you know, when I, I look at the, uh, the research out there and kind of the, I guess, the migratory patterns uh, that you might say, you know, cities really are magnets for humanity and, and more and more. And, and that may have slowed a little bit with the pandemic, but that certainly seems to be where the trend is going. And so, Carrie, this, this first question is for you. And I had been looking at the UN's World Cities Report from 2018. And I'm going to throw a couple of statistics at you just, you know, to kind of set, set the context. It said that of the world's 33 mega cities, which they define as cities with 10 million inhabitants or more, in 2018, 27 of those are located in less developed regions or the global south. And so that 27 out of 33 are in, in a more less developed areas. Nine of the 10 cities projected to become mega cities between 2018 and 2030 are, are located in developing countries. And so in light of that, you're seeing, you know, a large population that is moving into less developed areas. You know, what are the top two to three challenges for those cities that need to be overcome to position them for success as smart and sustainable places to live? Yeah, I think, you know, probably for a few months ago, we would say maybe environmental challenges, resource management, these type of things. Now we've seen, I mean, it's been, you know, very interesting and quite also scary, right, to see what's happening with the pandemics now and the pressure that this is and the changes that we need to do for our cities, right, and communities to adapt to this new situation. So I think, I mean, for me, the top challenge is governance really is to give the, the decision makers of cities and those who is, is planning and, and designing the cities tools to know that you can plan a city more holistically, right, in terms of all those challenges that is coming. And on the other side, also in terms of the technologies and the possible solutions that are out there, you know, we need to think holistic also in terms of that because it's all connected, right? The transportation, the, now the, the living conditions, the work conditions, housing, you know, it's, it's, it's the complexity of the cities is so, so tremendous. If it's in a developing city or a developed city, so it's actually not such a big difference here. Mm. But I think for, for, for sure, every city has a challenge and I've seen it now. I'm from Norway and we're working with lots of cities in Norway currently. Mm -hmm. Water management and waste management is one of the top challenges if you're looking at really you know, how to, to develop this infrastructure and in a sustainable and long-term way. Uh, the second is for sure mobility issues and, and how we now, also now, you know, with the pandemic and all these issues coming up, how we plan 
transportation mobility and, and these type of issues. So it's, it's really, it, it's a multi-layer of challenges, but opportunities that need to find each other in a way. And, and that's where the biggest challenge lies, but also the biggest opportunity. And that's why with this holistic evaluation that we do, you get all the facts on the table and you need to talk to each other because that's, we're not, we, it's a cliche that we are, you know, partnering and we're doing, you know, we are, but not enough. And we need to work, you know, cross-sector, cross-levels, as, as Kate said, you know, bringing the, the citizens that is actually going to benefit from all of those developments and into the mix here and give them a voice into how the city should look like for them, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's, um, and I think maybe one of the biggest challenges is also trust. We need to trust that we have also, you know, a good governance in place, that we have the leaders who knows, you know, how we should plan our cities, these type of things. So, you know, it's hard to pick one. It's just so many, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a kind of a interconnected set of challenges and accelerated by uh, technology. But let me ask you on that point about, you know, sharing and trusting and looking to leaders. Who are some of the geographical leaders in sustainable urban development that you'd point out and why would you do so? Yeah, it's a, it's a question I always get, mm -hmm. especially who is the smartest city in the world and, and why and these type of things. I'm really well, that's really London, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, the, it's the, the normal suspects, right? Not Singapore doing fantastic things and Dubai and London and then Amsterdam and, you know, a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. I want actually to highlight two other areas. And of course, I'm a little biased here because I'm from the Nordics, but uh, we are having our biggest cluster now of evaluating cities in Norway currently. We are evaluating 37 cities and communities, giving us massive data on what these cities need in terms of planning, sustainable and smart solutions. So, and this, this is now very interesting in terms of the private sector involvement, because we need private sector involved in solving these challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's for me, like, you know, and it's not just in Norway, we have also other clusters around the world, but specifically there, we will have now tremendous information on how we can maybe do this bridge with the private sector in a better way and bring those solutions into the needs of the cities. Another total different area, but also interlinked, is what they're doing in Ghana now in terms of budgeting for SDGs. I don't know if you know that, but this is the leading place, the only country currently who is planning their budget related to the SDGs. You know, and this is the innovation thinking we need in terms of linking you know, the data, the facts that we have with the policy and prioritizations and then with the budgets. If we don't get money into those sustainable and smart solutions, we're never gonna get there, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, this is for me very different approaches, but it's so exciting in the future. And, and how we can overcome, you know, the, the challenges that we have, but like working with new, you know, in new ways with each other. Hmm. That's really interesting that you pointed out Ghana. I, I did not know that, but, you know, obviously where the funding goes, so goes the, uh, the momentum, I guess. So it's literally, as we say in the United States, putting your money where your mouth is. So, um, so Kate, let me, let me turn to you and bring you in on this. Uh, let kind of start us off with uh, what are some of the key attributes of an ideally sustainable urban environment? Thanks, Paul. It, it's probably worth reflecting on what we see as a sustainable city or a, a sustainable urban place. 
And I think that's one that's really designed with consideration of social and economic impacts as well as environmental. Something that provides resilience for current populations and current citizens, but has also got an eye on maintaining that city for future generations. And you said at the top of this podcast, what an interesting time to be having this conversation. I think that's absolutely right. Because when, when we think about that environmental aspect of sustainability, mm-hmm. the lockdown that many cities globally saw in the initial phases of the pandemic resulted in attributes that I think many people would equate with an ideal urban environment. So we saw reduced traffic congestion. We saw more people out and about walking and cycling for their daily exercise. There was a renewed appreciation of open spaces in cities, of urban urban parks. We saw better air quality, better water quality, um, reduced light pollution and we saw carbon emissions plunge. So I know that we've been working with cities across the UK and Ireland to look at reallocation of road space, for example, to give our roads back to for active travel, but also outside restaurant space and just provide a bit of a nicer public realm. But alongside looking at that, we need to think about whether that was sustainable. And yes, we ended up with great things happening for our environment, Mm -hmm. but there were dramatic consequences for the economy. I mean, we're witnessing a global recession now and for society. Alongside the health impacts for people, we've seen vulnerable people isolated, jobs lost, Mm -hmm. families kept apart, children losing access to education. So certainly not a sustainable picture. However, the scale of that carbon emission improvement that we saw in cities during lockdown is of the magnitude of change that we need to see each year to meet the kind of net zero carbon targets that many cities have set. We are in the midst of a climate crisis as well as a pandemic Mm -hmm. and cities across the world are rising to that and many want to be net zero carbon by 2050 if not before and I think now we've got an even better appreciation of how challenging that target is. Mm -hmm. and the scale of change that we need to put in place to improve our environment but whilst balancing um, things so that the economy and society are kept at an even even keel. So Carrie made a really really good point about trust and about partnership and governance and I think this is going to take a balance um, between top-down leadership and strategic planning but also some real kind of grassroots change Mm -hmm. so making sure that we've integrated those strategic objectives politically environmentally and economically will really engage people in the decision making that's needed to drive real change and I think the right conversations with communities can really change the fabric of cities to move towards much more sustainable neighbourhoods and that and that will be a blend of both a physical and a digital environment so that smart piece coming in as Carrie alluded to earlier. A uh, a concept that I have come across lately was uh, this thing that's being called inclusive design and I hadn't heard of that before but uh, can you describe what is meant by inclusive design for our listeners, such as myself, who may not be familiar with the concept? 
Yeah, sure. So a quote I always come back to, probably because I'm British, <laughs> is one from the British Standards Institute, which defined inclusive design way back in 2005. So this is not a brand new concept. And that said, the design of mainstream products and services that are accessible to and usable by as many people as reasonably possible without the need for special adaptation. So I think that's a really, really useful definition just mm -hmm. to bear in mind when we think about this. So when I think about how we apply this thinking to the built environment, quite often there's a misconception that inclusive design is purely focused on accessibility considerations for people with disabilities, seen and unseen. And I don't doubt that's absolutely essential. So I'm part of the leadership of the Jacobs ACE network, mm -hmm. which helps to make our company more accessible and connect and empower our people with disabilities mm -hmm. and those that care for family and friends with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And through the work of that network, we know that the measures we put in place to make sure our company is better and fully inclusive for colleagues with disabilities those measures tend to make a better workplace for everyone else too so inclusive design looks beyond just that accessibility piece and it's really looking at equal opportunities for wider society across all protected characteristics so that's age and life stage disability gender race religion sexual orientation and inclusion is really about removing the barriers to participation for everyone. So how this plays out for cities, when we look at a city scale, mm -hmm. we know that design decisions can have a really fundamental impact on communities. So if I take gender as just one example to kind of um, illustrate the point, mm -hmm. Many cities have been traditionally designed around the lifestyles and behaviours of men. So this is quite apparent when you look at city zoning, where often commercial and industrial areas are separate from residential areas. And it suits a model where families have one breadwinner mm -hmm. and then another partner that remains in the suburbs and takes on caring responsibilities. One of my favourite books on the bookcase behind me um, it's a brilliant book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. Mm -hmm. And she really advocates mixed use planning to better accommodate all genders. So where you can find work, shopping, business services, education, community facilities, recreational facilities, all within an easily commutable area. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of talk recently about the 20 minute neighbourhood concept. And I'm sure Carrie will have heard that um, gaining interest from cities across the globe, mm -hmm. where everything you need is within 20 minutes from your house and really removes barriers for participation in education and employment for people of different genders. So certainly at, at Jacobs, when we look at inclusive design, it's mm -hmm. about including everyone mm -hmm. and designing for everyone. Okay. And that inclusive thinking needs mm. to permeate every stage of a design project. So from the beginning where you consult and understand the needs of communities and clients, mm. all the way through to equality principles in design 
and making sure that you measure improvement. That was okay. a long answer. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that was great. And, and so I was, you know, as I'm listening to you, I, I wanted to ask a, a follow-up and it's, uh, you know, around the benefits of, you know, can you describe what the benefits of a city that is inclusive and resilient, uh, what those might be? Uh, you know, beyond, obviously, you know, there's the moral imperative of trying to make sure that people, you know, that cities serve people and not the other way around. But, you know, what are some of the benefits, you know, that may not be as readily apparent? And what are the benefits to the cities and city planners and, and that sort of thing? Like, what does it mean? Like, if I have a, an inclusive city and I'm a city manager, you know, kind of in a nutshell, why is that a good thing? I think there are loads of benefits and those are benefits to society, the environment and the economy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to ensure that a city is resilient to any kinds of shock or stress that it might witness. I think the point is probably best made by considering the risks to cities of not being resilient or inclusive and what that might mean. And if we think of that again in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic that's really given us kind of a once in a generation opportunity mm-hmm. for us to peel back the skin of cities and get a better understanding of the systems that underpin our cities and how fragile they are. We've seen cities have been absolutely at the forefront of this pandemic and they've had to react and respond very very quickly And because of that, cities have done that in different ways, with different levels of success. So there are some really important learnings to take from different cities around their success of resilience planning and how they responded and looking to recover. So as well as looking at the response Mm -hmm. and the recovery plan, I think also we should be looking at some of the systemic problems that COVID has brought under the spotlight that have played out in our cities. And if we do that properly, I think we'll be looking at a brighter and more sustainable future for our cities and cities that are able to deal with this kind of shock with less of a devastating impact. So inequality is one of those underpinning issues. Mm -hmm. And it's an issue that deeply affects our resilience as society. When I look at what's played out in the UK, mm-hmm. we've seen middle classes able to shelter from home, while some of the poorest and most vulnerable communities have been hit the hardest. Mm. So further deepening inequalities that were already there. In the US, it's been documented that the African-American population has been disproportionately impacted. And the UN has estimated that 60 percent of pandemic related job losses will be experienced by women Mm. you know there's an opportunity now Mm -hmm. for us to really understand and tackle these issues in order to make sure that our communities are better equipped at dealing with disasters and climate change in the future okay no i mean that's fantastic because uh you know you were really right on there with like how the pandemic has kind of brought into sharp focus some of those challenges that we're being faced with and uh you know the inequalities like you're saying for instance uh, lower income families 
who don't maybe have access to the resources that they would need to be able to work from home, be it maybe childcare or technology or, or whatnot, that maybe some of the, the more affluent uh, populations are able to work with. Carrie, I want to I want to kind of go back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about sort of about the less developed areas of the world, and then you know, kind of weave in the 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 role of collaboration between governments and NGOs and corporations. So, uh, kind of preface this: I was looking at uh, Goldman Sachs 2019 report. They they said that most of the world's urban population is in less developed regions. Roughly, I estimated for uh, the year 2050, they are estimating that roughly five and a half billion people will be living in less developed versus le- uh, roughly two billion people in more developed areas. And so, again, it's you know almost two thirds of the, the global population will be in less developed areas. How do you see governments? NGOs, corporations, and other entities cooperating to offset the financial pressures? of creating more sustainable and resilient urban environments in those less developed regions? First, I need to say that we are, we are a little bit in a rush. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I've been working with City for the last six years from the day and I, but I'm also surprised that we are so far behind that we actually are. I mean, I can say that. I, it's, uh, and I mean, we have amazing initiatives, right? And we have banks and investors and we have the big need for infrastructure everywhere, but we are not able to find good projects that we can replicate to thousands of cities. Mm-hmm. It's always one-on-one projects and we are still testing and we're still doing pilots. And we need to get to a stage where we're thinking more systematic and have better ways to link this to each other, right? Because the need is there. Every city needs better waste management systems and we have the technology and we have the money for it. Why can we not find a method at the local level because it needs to happen in the cities that can actually be replicated? That, that's like, I, I cannot figure out why we cannot get there. And I think number one is as we, the trust has left the system in a way. You know, you know we don't trust each other anymore and we, we are not able to develop good projects because we need quality projects. So we are able to really mitigate that and, and bring this all together. Mm-hmm. So, and also we have a massive problem with the procurement. You know, the procurement methods, it's totally all outdated to be able to move faster, specifically in developing cities, countries, right? On mm-hmm. infrastructure. So it's, you know, from the trust to the holistic approach to finding a systematic method that we can actually bring this together. Uh, to doing something with procurement. It's like many elements in here. And, you know, if we can find a good method for one type of projects, if it is a waste management project, if it is a mobility project, we need not to just talk about, we're going to learn from each other. We have to do it. And we need to put it into a system. And I think the UN is a very good contender here to be replicating this or to help with the communication of replicating these projects, right? To spread the news, you know, here, good model, look into this, good solutions. You know, I think maybe the best solution in the world could come from a little startup. We will need to lift this up and spread it out, get it invested into, mm-hmm. get the money into the system. So it's, um, yeah, I, I have to say, I'm surprised we have not gotten there yet. Uh, I think there's a lot of good things happening at the moment. And I totally agree with Kate. We can now like really, okay, take a little pause, 
know, we can reset a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then how do we need to, to actually construct this partnership for the future to, to move faster? It's not lacking of willingness because the city leaders, they are totally, you know, looking for solutions and want to have these partnerships, but they don't have the methods to really do it, right? And it's not enough for one city. You know, we need to find things for lots of cities going in the same direction. So with this, you know, what I'm coming back to, I mean, to, to get the facts on the table, mm -hmm. and that's what it is all about. We, we can only take decisions based on facts and data. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, we're talking about data all the time and we have data for everything, but we're not using this data. So why don't we give this data to the private sector? Why don't we give this data to the finance sector now to say, okay, here, this is the needs. It's totally safe to invest in these areas because, you know, we have a market here. You have 150 countries, you have 20,000 cities who need exactly this technology. But we need to open this up and not sit in our offices and, you know, maybe the challenge is even bigger now that we're all sitting in our homes and, and not even meeting. But, you know, we need to find better transparent ways to share these things, you know, and, and also be honest about it. You know, what is needed, you know, and the developing countries, cities need to actually say what they really, really need. And we need to flag those things and, and work towards it together. And I, with the evaluation we do, we have a, like a red, yellow, uh, uh, green, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, some of the mayors have been really like, okay, I think, you know, they don't really want to have the red up there because it's just like, doesn't look so good for the city. Mm -hmm. But I had one mayor and I like him very much. And I said, I hope it's very red because I'm going to ask for much more money. <laughs> so, you know, this is how we need to approach these things. You know, we need mm -hmm. to be open and, and talk about the, the systematic problems that we have, you know, with the system as it is now. Mm. So as a follow-up to this, and in that same Goldman Sachs report, it, it, you know, it kind of made me think in light of the pandemic and like the impact on what I see is migratory patterns where more and more people are moving toward urban environments, you know? So a couple stats here from the Goldman Sachs report. And again, this was 2019. So this is well before the pandemic cities were already home to 55% of the world's population. And they expected the UN expected that to rise to 68% by 2050 or 6.7 billion people. And that was reflective of expected migration patterns and birth and mortality rates. Now, in light of COVID-19, do we anticipate that momentum towards urban environments will slow? And if not, how do you see urban development evolving to contend with greater population movements to our cities while managing health-related efforts such as social distancing? I think it will definitely not slow. For because this is going to continue and you know people are I, I was actually reading a report today how many people have moved into the cities in the last months it, it's just tremendous right people are looking for jobs mm -hmm. you know people will move to the to the centers but I think the challenges that we've seen for the last uh, months that the cities have been coping with and I mean a lot of our cities we're working with them closely has been of course this you know the, the whole the whole situation has changed in terms of work life living you know working at home the transportation that it's you know contagious how do we deal with the, the whole transportation system the use more of open spaces you know people claiming back their their open spaces in the cities you know it's been many many things i think what kate was mentioning the 20 minute neighborhood mm -hmm. uh, i think for sure this is what people are looking for more 
local, I would think small centers in the center. Mm -hmm. So having everything closer that you can, you know, you can actually leave your home to do the necessary things, but not needing to step into a tube or all these type of things. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of adaptations that will probably happen with less cars, people driving to work. I was reading, what was that, in Bogota, in Colombia, there was pop-up bike lines. I mean, how nice is this? Or like uh, for health workers, e-bikes, you know, lots of initiatives. And I, I think now we can really, you know, look into, you know, of course, I think we need to see the trends now. And, and I think, you know, it, it, we're in the middle of it. So I think we cannot say too much about you know what it would look like next year with the vaccine maybe we're back to normal i i hope not but you know we need to to study these things and see you know the trends of how people are moving i think for sure people will move we stay more at home work from home so i probably the mobility sector and how we plan mobility will need to change but um yeah there is you know now it's it's really a menu and possibility here for, for showing also all these solutions that can be tested out. And, and cities are really interested to test these things. So that's not difficult to find a city who would like to, you know, try new uh, ways of, you know, the transportation, all these things in the cities. So it's a fantastic opportunity now to, to get these new solutions up in the area. Okay. And then, Kate, so my last question for today, and, and uh, I kind of teased this up a little earlier when I was, I, I really wasn't joking about London being number one. So there was a IESE Business School in Barcelona, uh, Cities in Motion Index of the Smartest Cities in the World, and, and this from 2019, but they measured nine dimensions that they considered keys to progress, uh, human capital, social cohesion, economy, environment, governance, urban planning, international outreach, technology, and mobility and transportation. And surprise, surprise, London was ranked number one with a score of 100%. Now, in your role at Jacobs, you work closely with the city of London, and you're a resident uh, there. So what lessons from the London experience would you point to that could be beneficial, affordable, and achievable by other cities in a relatively fast time frame? say you know next three to five years hooray <laughs> so i'm completely missed but of course i think that london is a wonderful city a wonderful city and deserves this look we could fill a whole podcast talking about london paul so i'm going to keep it as brief as i can okay. I, I think something that london has done very well is to be bold ambitious and really look forward but also not forget about its past mm. um so make managing to balance and preserve its rich history and culture if we think about lessons learned i think i'll tie it back to some of the points that carrie was making earlier something that's been really key to london's success of recent years i really think has been around city leadership and governance and they've managed to balance out that strategic leadership with localism as well. Mm -hmm. So the Greater London Authority has an incredibly comprehensive suite of policy and strategy documents which range from the London Plan, the Mayor's Transport Strategy, all the way through to the London Environment Strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really helped them have clear direction and vision. And you might be surprised how few cities have such a complete position 
I can see Carrie nodding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this really has set the foundation for London's success recently, and I think against the criteria mm -hmm. in this index. And it's also complemented by strong local leadership by the 33 London boroughs. Mm -hmm. So in combination with this policy and governance position, London has really embraced data and digital. Again, one of the points that Carrie raised earlier. They appointed a chief digital officer. There's a Smarter Together London roadmap, which is their plan to transform London into the smartest city in the world. And they've got really effective routes to data sharing through the London Data Store. Mm -hmm. And they've recently opened the London Office of Technology and Innovation. As an example of London's early adoption of the power of data, we worked in partnership with Transport for London on Project Edmund. So that was a project to utilise anonymised mobile phone data to better understand travel demand patterns in the city to allow London to more effectively plan policy and infrastructure interventions. So that was a really exciting um, project that they took on. Something else that Carrie raised was really around um, transport and mobility. And I think London has been successful in pulling off some very bold moves around transportation. So certainly around infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I think the congestion charge that came into force in 2003 was a bit of a coup de force for London and made a significant impact in reducing traffic as one of a suite of schemes mm -hmm. used for economic and environmental benefit. And it's something that the city continues to review and make fit for purpose. So we recently helped with the implementation of their ultra-low emission zone, ULES, mm -hmm. where high-polluting vehicles need to pay more to access the centre of the city. And when we work with other cities around the world who are looking at plans for congestion charging and road pricing, often London is a model that clients refer to. And I think lastly, on that transport piece is how London has embraced active travel. So encouraging people to walk and cycle, putting in a strategic network of cycle superhighways. We've seen mini Holland schemes come into place as part of the Mayor of London's Healthy Streets approach. Mm -hmm. And they've really worked hard to reduce car dependency, air pollution, congestion, and also to improve safety. And we're really proud to have supported London with a lot of these measures. So listen, I could go on and on, but <laughs> those are just a, a few areas where I think other cities could take inspiration and try some change in a reasonably short time frame. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of the policy and governance. And maybe it's because as an American, you know, uh, just trying to get people to cooperate and share, you know, back to Carrie's earlier point, but the, the concept of trust and a shared vision. I, it really sounds like it's a marvel that London, given as cosmopolitan as it is and, and as large as it is, is able to find, you know, that kind of unity of purpose that allows them to then, you know, execute on a roadmap for the betterment of the city, regardless of, you know, worldview or, or, or political stripe or whatnot. So that, you know, we could probably talk about that all day, but I do find that very interesting and fascinating that 
London was able to achieve that that sense of unified purpose. So, and then of course the the leveraging of technology, you know, and that's only going to continue to accelerate as technology will do. So, well, Carrie and Kate, I want to thank you both very much. This was very educational for me as I'm trying to understand where the world is going, as, especially in light of the pandemic and and you know beyond, and how technology and human capital and all of that gets layered into you know, how we develop the cities of the future and make them sustainable and inclusive, like you said. So I want to thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you, Paul.